Hello and welcome to This Study Shows, a podcast from Wiley Research. I'm Marianne Ohota. And I'm Danielle George. Danielle, I worry that we might be running out of ways to say that this is a podcast that aims to share great ideas for effective science communication <laughs> and to inspire you and our listeners to get out there and share their research. Oh, there we go. I did it. You Yay. did. Yay. <laughs> Okay, so do you want to tell the listeners what we're looking at in this episode? Yes, this week's episode is all about openness and inclusivity. We're going to be looking at how we open up access to research and broaden the range of people who feel that science is for them. Okay, so I'd like to introduce our first guest. My name is Rakib Tesfaye, and I'm a PhD candidate in the neuroscience program at McGill University in Montreal, Canada. As well as working on her PhD, Rakib runs an initiative called Broad Science. Broad Science was started by graduate students to make science more engaging, intersectional and accessible through audio and through storytelling. Currently, we have three ongoing projects. The first is um, it's a podcast that produces in-depth stories about the intersection of science and society um, about a very specific topic where the narrative is led by uh, folks and communities that have historically been underrepresented in science and science stories and uh, historically not had their voices heard. Um, and in the second project, we uh, host story evenings, storytelling evenings here in Montreal. And then the third project that we do is uh, we host a youth programming. So we mostly work with underserved areas here in Montreal to get kiddos involved with science journalism at a very early age, trying to understand why science communication is very important. And they basically become mini science journalists. They uh, go through like a little boot camp workshop where they learn audio production and interviewing skills. And then they get to meet uh, a scientist for the first time and then interview them on the radio. Um, so we use audio in different ways to make science engaging and accessible and inject storytelling into that. And the idea for this was inspired by Rakib's own experiences as a researcher. You know, I very much recognize that at an early age, there was a specific prototype of, of a person who would conduct science. And that wasn't reflected in the, the, the people that I grew up with or, or me as, as, as a child. And as I got older, started to see that that was also reflected in the people who were teaching me about the scientific process. And the higher up you get into academia, uh, it, it can be very isolating for, for many of these marginalized groups. Um, and so... Is that just sort of in terms of race or is it something else as well? Oh, I mean, it, it, more than race. It goes beyond that. I mean, your gender, your sexual orientation, whether or not you're able-bodied. I mean, this goes well beyond race, um, for sure. And that stereotype of, of the scientist, who is that person? <laughs> well, I mean, it's 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 often depicted as a, a, someone who is male, um, someone who is older and white, uh, who, who might have unruly hair and some glasses. I fit two of those criteria. <laughs> the the unruly hair in the summer for sure. Um, <laughs> but it, it is, you know, there there is decades of academic research to show that at a very early age 
kids will start to draw this stereotype. And in fact, uh, what I find very interesting about this research is that it shows when kids are, are quite young, uh, before kindergarten, they, you know, there's a bit more diversity in who they're drawing as scientists. But as they get older, into elementary school age, into middle school age, um, there's a uniformity. So clearly there is something about exposure and understanding to science as we grow up that is um, shaping uh, how, how we view who produces science. And that is very much reflected in, in my experience and, and, and many others uh, as well. Talk, talk me through the experiences of, of the, the kids that you work with um, when they get to meet a hashtag actual living scientist. <laughs> You know, it's one of my favorite things that I do is getting to hang out with kiddos who um, are so curious. You know, we, we often underestimate uh, the capabilities of, of youth and often don't engage in these very complex conversations, but they absorb so much and they are able to have profound conversations that we do not give them credit for. And so to see these group of youth who are often underserved uh, because of their circumstances, because of their socioeconomics or their background or that they're newly arrived refugees or immigrants, um, to have a space where they can just explore and not be evaluated, to just have a conversation and to guide their own learning is an incredible process. And when they meet a scientist for the first time, especially a scientist who looks like them or their families, which often happens, it's like you see these walls break down where they finally see, oh, this is a this is a person who looks like my dad or who rides the bus with me or who goes to the grocery store. Um, so this illusion of the ivory tower starts to kind of break down and uh, also something that we really emphasize within that program is, yes, they ask scientists about their work themselves, the work that they do, sorry, in the lab, but they're also inquiring about their life, about who the scientist is, what they do. They obviously, you know, back in the day when we were elementary school students, we thought that teachers lived in the school. <laughs> right? That, you know, but they're, they're starting to, to realize that these, these scientists, um, may have these incredibly complex stories uh, that might be similar to their own and also that they fail. The number one thing that we emphasize within this program is to highlight and to celebrate failure because what we do as scientists most of the time, 99% of the time, at least in, in, in my PhD at least, is, <laughs> is, is fail. And that is a sign of progress as well. And so we know that when youth are exposed to failure, that uh, they ultimately do want to in, feel more engaged in the process and, and feel less intimidated by science itself. But if you're opening a textbook and all you see is Nobel Prize, Nobel Prize, this worked, this worked, then you know, that isn't a true understanding of how science works and the scientific process, which is such a shame. What would you say that the the biggest eye-opener for the young people that you've worked with is when they when they have the training in the science journalism, they get to meet an actual scientist, they they have a conversation with them as as peers. So, you know, just even the first physical interaction is is seeing what they look like uh, is the first uh, kind of misconception that, that goes out the door. They don't come in with a white coat. Another 
great thing that comes out of that is, uh, or the program rather, is kids are absorbing, like I said, many things in the world that are are frightening and that are, are constantly changing. And so here is an opportunity for them to talk about it openly without being evaluated by a teacher and to have another adult, a scientist, take those questions seriously and answer them. So whether it's about climate change, um, whether it's about, you know, disorders or disabilities within their families that they might want questions about, this is a space where they're starting to, to feel like, okay, we have questions that are being valued and our, our curiosity and the way that we want to learn is not being discouraged because, you know, some kids don't want to be on the mic and that's fine, but they have a hand in scripting and researching. And so they gravitate towards things that are best suited to their interests and to what they believe they're good at. And that's why I really love this program is, is watching their kind of curiosity, you know, not be kind of smushed by these educational boundaries that we put on science education that's so huge i mean like literally you could change people's lives by that that setting up that one interaction i i mean i hope so we i mean if we if we can you know just see a smile on one kiddo's face and 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 have their perception of science change and that is to us job well done that's an outcome that we'll take (laughs) I think Rakib's work is about openness, but it's also kind of a form of collaboration because mm. the knowledge the scientists are sharing with these with these kiddos isn't <laughs> theirs. I mean, the children come away from this experience feeling like that science belongs to them in part as well and therefore yeah. society. And I think that's really powerful. Yeah, I think it's really, really powerful and really important as well. I really liked what she was saying about failure as well. And I think that's really important as a researcher, as a scientist, to fail and to, you know, like Rakib was saying, you learn so much from those failures and that sort of fail fast and learn approach that people have. And as Rakib said, it's a sign of progress. Yeah. I think in society, we do have that tendency sometimes to default to the inspirational creation myth style stories. You know, the apple drops on your head and you discover this amazing thing. The the hardworking musician who suddenly has the amazing multi-million dollar recording contract. But actually, the reality of science and so much of other endeavours in society is it's iterative, it's collaborative, it takes a long time. You've got to take those failures on the chin and learn from them. It's that growth mindset stuff, isn't it? Yeah, it really is, yeah. And if you're communicating your science, you have to communicate the real stuff. And failure is the real stuff too. Okay, Marianne, question for you. Do you like libraries? Oh, I love a library. Is it um, Albert Einstein who said the only thing that you absolutely have to know is the location of the library? (laughs) Yes, that's a good one. Yeah, I like that one. (laughs) Why do you like them? I think... I think they're exciting places, aren't they? Because you never know what you might discover. And also, they're quite kind of fun, collaborative places. A lot of my work is done on my own before I end up, you know, recording or, or filming with someone. Mm. Um, so libraries feel feel like places where there's a, a sort of shared endeavour, even though you're working on separate things. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. I mean, in a, in a university, the 
the library is is very it's sort of quintessentially part of a university and it isn't just for borrowing books they're responsible for licensing access to all of the material that's read during during people's research so there are lots of things changing in libraries and and that includes open research or open access now open access means making those research publications freely available to the reader so that anyone can benefit from reading it and crucially using that research as well mm-hmm I wanted to find out the impact of open access on libraries, so I spoke to a real-life librarian. My name is Chris Banks. I'm Director of Library Services at Imperial College, um, where I'm responsible for the college's uh, seven libraries. Imperial College London is an interesting case here because their print collections are the smallest in the Russell Group. Now, the Russell Group is a self-selected group of top UK universities that major in research. And Chris told me that they spend over 92% of their budget on electronic resources. We spend over £8.5 million a year on licensing access to, to content. And increasingly with funder open access mandates. We we are now um, providing much more of a service uh, to academics in supporting them uh, in publishing, in managing the funds to help them publish open access, in um, supporting their eligibility for the research excellence framework, which is a huge thing for, um, particularly for research intensive universities. Um, you know, the, the money that the research excellence framework the ref um, generates for the for the institution is is significant so we want to make sure that their best work is eligible for contribution to that exercise this is the first year when um, there has been an open access element to the uh, the ref eligibility criteria can you explain some of those words to me the funder open access mandates the ref eligibility criteria Yep. So the REF criteria is, so REF is Research Excellence Framework, and Mm -hmm. that's a system for assessing the quality of research in UK higher education institutions. And then we have criteria to include in that framework. So the date that things are published and when they are deposited in a repository, so an open access repository. And so funders for open access mandate that you deposit your journals in an open access repository. Make sense? Ah, okay. So So it's important for your research funding that there is open access to that published research. Yes, in the UK, are, are the people who fund our research mandated now. Right. So open access will have a big impact on libraries, and that's something that Chris is very much behind. I, I, I am absolutely for it, and I think one of, the, if, one of the most extraordinary things about the current COVID crisis is the amount of research that is being done and made immediately open access for others to scrutinise and work on in order to accelerate the, you know, the sorting out of tests, the finding of a vaccine, um, the publishing of data on infection rates and on, on physical outcomes. And the fact that so much of this work is being made open access 
to facilitate that global study while people are in isolation is really, really important. I think most people would then say, well, okay, you've done it for this disease. Why can't you do it for all the other diseases? Mm. What are the, if any, what are the negative impacts or the disadvantages of, of open access from your point of view? So I think the the biggest challenge is the fact that we, if, if we were to switch publishing off and turn it back on again, you wouldn't invent it the way it is at the moment. So the way the money flows at the moment in a pay-to-read world needs to be very different if effectively somehow what you're doing is paying to publish, whether that's at the individual article level or whether it's funding publication platforms and such like. The challenge at the moment is is very much around the way the money flows. So I work at a research intensive institution. Our researchers publish between 10 and 12,000 articles a year. And in a pay to publish world, if we simply flipped from paying to read, which everybody pays, to a pay to publish world, a lot of those costs come in my direction. You mentioned you're from Manchester. Manchester is one of, there are five big publishers in the UK. So Mm. they're Cambridge, Oxford, Imperial, Manchester and UCL. And we, you know, we, we between us publish more than some whole countries, just these five (laughs) universities. Um, And so those, you know, those potential costs come in our direction if we, if we don't substantially change how the money flows. But of course, the where the money is flowing to is to the publishers and they still want the same amount of money to flow to them somehow. So how do we get the money in the right place? If you think about us moving to a pay-to-publish world, um, that might mean that the institutions who are mostly consumers of, of, of this research rather than contributors to it, their, their money is not going... Their money is not going to come to um, to the research intensive university. So the University of Poppleton, for those who remember the the back page of the Times Higher, the University of Poppleton is not going to give its library budget to Imperial Cambridge and Oxford. Mm. Um, it's going to want to put it back into buying something else. So the money that's currently going into publishing won't be where it is needed, and that I think is one of the biggest structural problems that we have with this but as a as a librarian you feel the the advantages outweigh that sort of cost disadvantage absolutely we're certainly seeing a much more um morally and ethically driven set of researchers coming through because i think Mm. the thing that we would have seen in the past was say you'd been committed to open access publishing, you thought it was absolutely the right thing to do. Um, You might find yourself in a lab where essentially you might have got told, well, that's all very well. You can do that when you've got your first article in, name big journal of your choice, go Mm. and get that first. And then you can go away and do your lovey-dovey open access thing. I think we're seeing seeing a much more um, uh, sort of ethically driven... um, community coming through now who who are determined to try and make that change we're seeing it in so many different spheres of which open access is is one of those Mm. so so i work a lot with the uh, librarians at at the university i work at in manchester um and 
And I find that there's always a lot of people who are really surprised by the amount of students and researchers who come in who actually still want print. And I'm one of them as well, actually. You know, I still love printed books. There's something about physical textbooks that I just can't seem to to have the same relationship with an ebook. Is that something that you see as a librarian? Yep. Yes, very much so. I mean, especially when it is a textbook, when it's something you're going to be referring to um, over and over again. There is something about the physicality of the book. You remember that you had a particularly useful piece of information about halfway through the book on the bottom left-hand side of the page. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there is there is that physicality about where the information is that helps with the, the you know, the process of learning and memory. It's been very interesting because... Um, I think my my predecessor at Imperial probably would have thinks I'm bonkers by still having any print at all uh, in in the library. But students and and staff still like the print book. Not so long ago, 10, 12 years ago, people were predicting the death of libraries. Everything would be online. It would only be old fuddy daddies that would be going to look at dusty old books mm-hmm. in national libraries. But other than that, nobody you know nobody would go go to libraries, and. I mean, you know, people who think, oh, nobody ever goes to the library um, uh, should, should come to our place sometimes because it is rammed, absolutely rammed. It was interesting that, that Chris mentioned um, electronic resources and the fact that even though we've got loads of electronic resources, people still come to libraries as well, which I think is really nice. I mean, I, I go to the library as part of of my work as a, a as a professional person, but I also take Elizabeth to the library as well. My daughter. Oh, wait! To so your like serious science lab library? No, to the local library that's got books on <laughs> right. Thomas the Tank Engine and Peppa Pig and Princess. That makes me. I understand now. She's like, you just sit there with a few journals of Physics Quarterly while I crack on. <laughs> But it's interesting though, isn't it? Because, you know, students in universities have got, you know, they, they, they've grown up with electronic resources all around them, mm. yet they still want to go to libraries. I think it's really nice. Yeah, I, I, I guess it's because it's a, a place where knowledge is king and the, the architecture suggests, it, it's just all incredibly helpful to help you concentrate I, I think the thing that I like about it is that it's um it's it's kind of optional now. So if it doesn't suit you, you don't have to. You could do it from your sofa, um, mm. with a laptop, you know, perched on a cushion, or on your mobile phone sitting in the park. But if you want to sit in a kind of a, a hallowed hall to to receive this information, then go for it. Those places are there for you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And people like Chris are there for you to help as well, help you navigate this amazing world. So carrying on with the theme of open access publishing, let's now look at it from the perspective of the publishers. I spoke to Catherine Sharples from our very own Wiley Research about what they're doing on developing open access research. I'm Catherine Sharples. I'm Senior Director for Open Access at Wiley. Um, And my role and and Wiley's focus really in the open access space is all about making 
more content available to more research content more widely available to to everybody around the world the open access movement is very much about increasing accessibility and reusability of research material and my role is really focused on on how widely as a publisher um, helps researchers to achieve that goal what impact does it have on helping researchers and their research find new audiences sort of outside their normal audience in academia when you publish your research open access as as i mentioned it means that it's openly available to everybody mm. you don't have to be a subscriber to a particular journal in order to access that research and that in and of itself automatically broadens the reach and the opportunity for others to access and to engage with your work so if you're a, a practitioner who's working outside of a research institution, outside of a university library, mm. or if you're a member of the public or a policymaker in government or a government advisor or a teacher or a, or a GP, then if a piece of work, if a piece of research has been made open access, then you can access, read and reuse that work. So if you're looking for the latest information, as you probably would be at the moment on, hmm. on COVID-19, or if you're looking for the latest research on a particular disease or a particular um, technology, mm. then you can read and access them online. That's clearly beneficial to you from a policymaker's perspective, from a member of the public's perspective. So that wider audience gives a really a much bigger amplification of your message and your research as the individual researcher. Are there any are there any challenges of accessibility though when it comes to open access? So so that might be geographically or maybe with public use as well. Yeah, sure. So so if you're if we're talking about content or we are talking about content that is available online, so there can clearly be some challenges to access if you're in a region with poor or unreliable internet mm. connectivity. But beyond that, there's there's also a discussion about access to funds to cover article publication charges. So open access journals typically employ what we call, what publishers call APCs or article publication charges. And these are fees that are charged to cover the cost of publishing in order to make that research, to make that work freely available. And those APCs are paid by the author, by the author's institution or by their research funder. And publishers like Wiley are increasingly entering into agreements at a national level in order to cover the cost of those APCs so that authors in institutions in a particular country covered by those agreements don't have to go in search of funding to cover a particular articles APC, but they're covered automatically under this, these broad national agreements. Hmm. That's interesting because we've heard from another one of our guests on, on the show that um, that decisions of, of where to publish are seen as, a, as an ethical decision now that, that seems to be on more on the shoulders of the researchers themselves, you know, whether they choose open research or a more traditional journal. 
But either way, you know, speaking as a researcher, um, it seems yeah. that the, the publishers themselves are still making their money as well. Could you just explain to us how the publishers are doing their bit from an ethical point of view? So, so publishers don't influence the decisions that authors make about where to submit their, mm. their research. Um, the publisher's role here is about, so in the context of these, these national agreements, sometimes referred to as transitional or transformational agreements, the purpose of those agreements is actually to, to kind of democratize the ability to publish open access. Um, whether you're in a humanities subject area or a life science or a physical science subject area, which, you know, those, those areas can have very different funding models and the access to funds can be quite different in different subject disciplines. These broad national agreements kind of produce a level playing field from a subject discipline perspective and provide authors regardless of their previous funding situation with the ability to choose to make their work open access in any of the journals that that publisher that Wiley publishes. And there's different costs associated, isn't there, with, with the different journals, you know, publishing a, an article in a nature paper, for example, you know, might, might be a lot higher cost. Do you think the, um, the national agreements you were, you were just talking about, do you think they provide a, a value for money for, for research institutions? Absolutely. I mean, I would say that because I work for <laughs> for a publisher. But as I mentioned earlier, I think they, you know, they're they're about democratizing the ability for researchers to make their work open access. So in that respect, I, I believe that they really do represent extremely good value. That those agreements also come with um, an access element to them. So publishers often talk about these national agreements being publish and read agreements. So they provide the ability for researchers to publish their work open access in any of the journals that Wiley publishes, but they also provide everybody in the institutions covered by those agreements to read, to access all of the content that is published by Wiley. Um, what's next for open access, do you think? Where does it need to go now? I think we will continue to see a proliferation of these national agreements. So as I mentioned, they are at the moment, fairly Northern European or Western focused, but we're starting to see some changes and to have more conversations about the need or the desire for some similar agreements in other parts of the world. I think there is a real um, momentum to the movement around data sharing. Funders have a really big role to play here whether they're national funders or whether they're governments who mandate for research to be open, you know, when that's the case, we typically see wider adoption of policies. And they've been, funders have been very focused on open access, but they're now really looking closely at and talking about mandating openness of data. Mm. So I think we're going to see and hear an awful lot more in the next few months and years about the importance of data sharing, the importance of transparency around the collection of data, the curation of data. 
It's not necessarily a new area, but it, I think it's one that's really gathering momentum and one we'll be talking and, and focusing on a lot in the coming year. Yes, yeah, brilliant. This is really interesting, Danielle, the idea of open research making the whole of the, the process of research open. So not mm. just access to the published journals, but people are making software, coding, their raw data, all the the kind of the nuts and bolts of, of research, as well as the raw materials. That That's huge because it, it requires quite a lot of trust in your peers at other institutions to not trump you, to not just kind of steal your stuff. It's a totally new way of looking at this kind of property. Yeah, it really is. It sort of, it gets people out of their silos, you know, and and sees everyone else as the competitor um, and much more as a collaborator, I think. And and that's a really good thing. And I think it improves the quality of research. You know, it's because through open access, you're, you're more open, you're more transparent, and you can reproduce that research practice that, that you've just read about, um, which should improve that area of science. I mean, that it's a, <laughs> forgive me for saying what I'm about to say. That all sounds very worthy and very humble. But mm. of, one of the things I feel like I've learned about academia is that actually it's quite competitive and, and people can be quite... Um, aggressive in in defending their positions yeah but but because you want to be the first person to publish it once it's published it's really good you know for for the people want to get on the back of that what it means is they have to cite your paper and so it's all about getting your your paper published first now open Mm. access has a much quicker route to publishing and so if you can do that then the next person that publishes will cite your work. And citations are a really, really important thing for researchers. What if you're building on the first stage of your research, but actually this in your mind is the next seven years of your career? I mean, would you not want to kind of keep some of it in your own special drawer and not let other people at it because they might trump you to the next stage? Mm, I think there is a bit of that still, but hopefully... That seems to be sort of the the old way of thinking, and the new way of thinking is much more collaborative. So, so I know I'm really good at this part, but there's probably someone in the world who's really good at this other little part. And so, if we work together, that sum is greater than those two parts. Oh, I love it. As the taxpayer in this particular equation, <laughs> I'm I'm a big fan. Go for it. <laughs> good. <laughs> That's the end of this episode of This Study Shows. And the thing that stood out for me is that shift from seeing other researchers in your field as competitors and much more as collaborators as we move into open access. Yeah, what's clear is that that landscape, that traditional landscape is is changing and it's changing fast. So it's really exciting to see where that's going to lead scientists and research institutions. Yeah, absolutely. So listeners, hopefully you have more insight on the benefits of open access publishing for your research and the benefits that sharing your data can bring. And of course, we spoke to Rakib in Canada, who's doing amazing work with broad science, reaching out to communities who might otherwise not have access to science and scientists. Yeah, absolutely. 
We've come to the end of another episode of This Study Shows. Thank you for listening. If you want transcripts, videos, links to our guests, head to thisstudyshows.com. If you want to get in touch, tweet us at Wiley in Research or email us at thisstudyshows at wiley.com. This Study Shows is a listen entertainment production for Wiley Research. It's presented by Mariana Hotter and me, Danielle George. It's produced by Maddie Hickish. The executive producer from Listen Entertainment is Nick Minter. And the executive producer from Wiley Research is Samantha Green.